Hi, Bethany. Hi, Rochelle. Happy birthday to us. Yes. Happy birthday to us. Sort of. Sort of. Kind of. It's Science for the People's 500th episode. I feel like you should have like... <laughs> some sort of... Yes. It's hard to believe this This little podcast has been chugging along since I looked it up. March 20th, 2009. When we started out as the podcast Skeptically Speaking, and now it's 10 years later, almost 10 years later, and here we are, going strong, with 500 episodes. Exactly 500 episodes. Well, it's probably not quite 500 episodes. Uh, If you actually go back and do the math, um, there's probably slightly fewer or slightly more than 500. And the reason for that is when we did the switchover from being called Skeptically Speaking to being called Science for the People, we also changed like back ends, the sort of um, CMS system that like makes the podcast accessible to people uh, on the internet. And in the past, we didn't used to number the rebroadcasts, but the new system required us to renumber the broadcasts. So there's actually a little bit of inconsistency, uh, but I kind of think we should just embrace it because 500 is a really arbitrary number to celebrate anyway when you think about it. And so since this is probably not quite the 500th episode, could be a little more, could be a little less, seems appropriate. Well... I'm now wondering how many things in this world have suffered from random arbitrary renumbering processes and some of and like how many anniversaries that we celebrate that are not correct. I think that we should do a profound and important study on this so that we Perhaps. know how many things that we think are X number of years old are not and we can be outraged by it. I bet there are so many. There's so much internet outrage waiting to happen. Anyway, we decided to take this podcast, our totally exact 500th, <clears throat> to reflect a bit and be self-indulgent. We wanted to talk about what brought us here, where the podcast is going, and take some questions from our loyal and highly intelligent listeners who, in their highly intelligent fashion, asked us some really, really good questions. Um, I wanted to start, though, with one of my own, Rochelle, <laughs> 10 years ago. Pretty much no one was listening to podcasts, including me, actually. <laughs> um, can you give me some history where did science for the people come from? Oh, gosh, that's a long story. And not all of it I know the exact details of. So the podcast started primarily as a radio show. Um, so for anyone who's not familiar with uh, campus radio, a lot of universities have like a little radio station kind of hidden in their bowels, where a group of keen students creates radio for the campus. Um, there's also community radio stations that do something similar. Um, and Desiree Shell and I can't remember who, had pre- previously been doing another radio show on campus radio. Um, Desiree had got into science and skepticism and wanted to do something more on that side. And so she shifted the radio show that she was doing uh, to be skeptically speaking, which at the time was very much a skeptic uh, with a K, the sort of big S K uh, community podcast or a radio show, sorry. And as part of that, because there were a lot of skeptic podcasts starting to pop up, uh, they decided to put it out as a podcast as well. So it kind of started primarily as a radio show. Um, the team at that point was, uh, I don't know all the people, but that would have been Desiree Shell. Um, our editor, Ryan, uh, was involved at that point. I think he's the only original, as we, as we like to call him. Um, <laughs> the OG Ryan. Yeah. Uh, the, Another produ- a previous producer was, I think, Sean we met. Um, so there was a different group of people involved at the time, um, but they were producing both the radio show and the podcast. And this was in 2009. This is also the era, interestingly enough, that maybe some of our uh, listeners who have been with us that long might remember that we used to stream the audio live. Uh, on Ustream. So we used to record all of our interviews, or at least the sort of lengthy ones on Sunday nights, I think at like 7pm every Sunday, that's when we'd book the show because we'd record them live and stream them on Ustream. Originally, we were running them live from the radio station at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, but they were having some issues with uh, making sure we've got had strong internet connections. So we actually transitioned to recording in Desiree Shell's uh, spare bedroom on the floor uh, with Ustream so that people could listen live and ask questions live. 
And um, if you could just just imagine this, uh, we're sitting on the floor. Uh, Desiree is in a very small corner of the room, her laptop and microphone balanced precariously on a chair. And she is surrounded by a tiger blanket, like you sort of see those giant sort of novelty blankets on the side of the road being sold out of, sold out of uh, vans. She had one of those. That's what we used as sound baffle. Uh, and the person who was running the show on Ustream would be kind of sat on the floor a few feet away on the other side of the blanket, and you'd be kind of signaling to each other through this blanket to indicate when we were live and when we were off the air. Um, and quite often, we also had the producer, K.O. Myers, who was triaging the questions and sending the questions via email to Desiree on her phone. Uh, so we had quite a weird system. And even from a, a very early point, we were a very remote team. Um, although some of us were local and we used to run the shows locally as well. So that was a big challenge in the early part of the show. Um, those early years, including when I came on board, was recording things live. We had to book all of our guests to be available Sunday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, and obviously, if you're trying to book someone in the UK, that can be like one in the morning, which can make things really tricky to try and book people. Um, I can't even imagine. Yeah. So that's sort of what I came on board to. Uh, and I came on board in part because I had met uh, Desiree and Ko and Ryan at some local events. And Desiree was going to be away for, I think, three to four weeks. And they didn't want to do rebroadcasts for those that sort of stretch of time. And at the time, we were recording live. So if you weren't available on the day, uh, they had to air a rebroadcast. And so they asked me if I would be interested in doing a couple of guest hosting spots in order to cover this kind of period of time when Desiree wasn't going to be available so they wouldn't have to put in all of these uh, rebroadcasts. And I said yes. Um, and that was sort of my beginning uh, involvement with the show. Um, and I think that very first interview, which was Carol Tavris on her wonderful book, uh, I think I spent something like 12 hours prepping for that interview because I had never done it before and I didn't know how to do it. And I look back on that that sort of frantic long day of me trying to figure out how to prep a live interview, and uh, I look look back on it with some fondness. <laughs> I actually admit, I think when I did my first hosting, I also spent about twelve to fourteen hours <laughs> frantically prepping. And yeah, it, it was it was stressful at the time, but now I'm like, oh, I, I feel like it was it was just kind of a rite of passage. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it comes down quickly once you've sort of done it a couple of times. You get the hang of it. You get to sort of get a feel for it. As you do with anything, you get better. Uh, so it no longer takes quite that long to prep a show. But uh, I definitely remember looking at the time that day and spending an entire Saturday just like, I'm never going to get this done. This is impossible. Oh, my gosh. What am I going to do? <laughs> I also am amused to note that, like, you know, almost 10 years later, Science for the People still has a wonderful and diverse history of blanket forts. Yes, I think we still have that. Uh, I don't have a blanket around me now. I've upgraded ever so slightly, but uh, I understand that you're in a closet. I am. And in fact, I am, I am in a blanket fort. <laughs> I, have, I have definitely recorded my fair share of episodes in closets. I used to have uh, the previous place that I lived. I definitely had a recording closet. Yeah, it's, it's actually my closet. Um, and it's surrounded by, uh, I got some free sound baffles from a neighbor who was giving away sound baffles as one does. Um, <laughs> because, okay. And then I have this massive, uh, king size quilt. And then I also have my wedding dress serving as sound baffles because Lord knows you're never going to use that thing again. <laughs> and it makes great sound baffle. It really does. Like all that tool, it really helps. Anyone looking to start up their own podcast, uh, look at your closet, figure out how you can fit a small table and a chair and a microphone in that closet without removing any of the clothes. It's great sound baffle. Yeah, it's really impressive. Anyway, so you joined, you came on. What year was that? Was that? That was 2011. So I personally have been involved in the show for like seven years. Wow. Which is a lot. It's actually longer than I've had any job, which is a bit crazy to think about. Actually, now that I think about it, that yeah, it's longer than I've had a job too. <laughs> Yep. So this, this is, uh, even though it wasn't birthed by me, I do consider science for the people a little bit my baby now. Uh, and I'm, I'm both protective of it, but also I like to kind of let it out into the world and see what happens when it encounters other people and new people who, uh, help out like you. Um, 
So yeah, I just started to become, originally I was involved uh, occasionally as a guest host and also as that person sitting on the floor next to the blanket fort running the Ustream from time to time. Um, and then we got to a point where uh, our then producer, KO, needed to transition out of that role. And I was able to pick up that role. And at the time, the producer role was primarily about coordinating interviews and finding people, coordinating Desiree's calendar, coordinating the recording calendar, coordinating the episode calendar. So it was really just a transition of me into that role to um, take some of the load off KO's plate. Because as we all know, this is a volunteer production. Uh, basically, ain't no one getting paid for this. Um, (laughs) and KO uh, needed to focus on other things going on in his life and couldn't dedicate the time and I had some time that I could dedicate so we kind of did a bit of a shift Um, and so I started doing more guest hosting um, all the producing from the standpoint of coordinating the interviews and coordinating Desiree's calendar Um, and then over a period of time as Desiree and I started to work closer and closer together and her uh, sort of quote-unquote real-life calendar started to get busier and more complex, and she wasn't able to keep up with the load of a weekly show. Um, Because make no mistakes, we're volunteers, but a weekly show is no joke. It is uh, a heavy calendar to keep up with. Um, I started to do more of the hosting and kind of transitioned from being a guest host to just a host. Uh, And yeah, and then I've sort of taken on that role. Um, And there was also a transition around that time from skeptically speaking to science for the people, which kind of seems like a natural transition, but also seems like they're slightly different things. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a couple of things that prompted that. That was around, I think that was 2013. I think it was November, 2013 that we made that shift. Um, There were a couple of things that prompted that. The first was for the last year to two years, we really hadn't been a quote unquote skeptic podcast anymore. We had really kind of run out of skeptic topics. Um, and we were talking a lot more about science and the intersection of science in different parts of the real world, um, politics, art, uh, just everyday life um, that didn't necessarily fall entirely outside the scope of skepticism, but it also didn't really kind of hit the main skeptic button. So we're, we were feeling a bit kind of um, fenced in by the term skeptic uh, because what we were most interested in is kind of science and how science affected uh, everyday life. And additionally, there was some kind of stuff happening in the skeptic community that we weren't super happy about. And we wanted to kind of distance ourselves from some of that and not kind of mark ourselves out as clearly as being part uh, of that community in the same way that we used to. And that's just as you grow apart from things, sometimes uh, you're not comfortable with those labels anymore. So those two reasons, um, because we were already basically uh, jumping outside that topic box, and because we weren't real comfortable with the label, we shifted over to science for the people. Um, which we quite liked because it's got a little bit of a lefty bent to it, which anybody who listens to the show will know that we have. Um, and it also implies that science has real world impact in a way that isn't just about this is interesting or this is base research that we should do. Those things are all important, but also let's talk about how this intersects with the rest of the world around us. And I actually really love that because yeah, to me, science is this whole wonderful, fabulous, huge, wide world of things. And I think also people don't necessarily think how, like, I don't know, quantum teleportation impacts their daily lives, which it may not most of the time, to be fair. But <laughs> I was very pleased. And in 2016, you actually brought me on. And this was sort of concurrent with Desiree kind of leaving. And I, we actually, here we get to our very first listener question. Uh, Ryan Gerber asks... Uh, where is Desiree and her amazing, glorious podcast voice? He didn't put in the bit about her amazing, glorious podcast voice, but I think we can all agree that her voice is amazing and glorious. <laughs> it is, and she is sorely missed. Um, Desiree basically started to ramp up uh, her job. She works with AUPE in Alberta, um, and she's now the Director of Union Engagement and Technology there. Um, and that job was starting to monopolize a lot of her time, and she needed to be able to dedicate that time to that end and couldn't spend as much time on the show. Um, and it was just a very natural progression for us to move Desiree out as she had less time to focus on the show. And also, she had been with the show for, at that point... 
how many years is that? That's seven years? Yeah, seven years. Yeah, you brought me on in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And she kind of felt like she had um, exhausted a lot of the topics that she was really interested in that she could also spend the time to investigate and look at. And it was just a natural progression when a podcast runs for this long. Uh, some people are going to leave and some people are going to come in. And I think that's good for any show. So where is Desiree now? Uh, Desiree is exactly where she was before. Uh, she's doing great work with the AUPE union. Um, and she is just as interested in a lot of these topics, but she is now a listener rather than uh, on the mic. And if at some point she decided that she wanted to come back, of course, we would welcome her with open arms. Um, but at the moment, I believe she's quite content to listen to the show and cheer us on from the sidelines. I'm actually part of every time I record is thinking about what Desiree will think as I'm, <laughs> as I'm recording and being like, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah, like what would Desiree do, I think, is for all the hosts, something that sits in the back of our brains, because she very much is responsible for the tone of the show. um, And kind of the direction through which we frame a lot of our discussions, and also um, just the kind of people we have on the show. So savvy listeners will notice that all of our hosts are women. And while that's never been an explicitly stated or marketed feature of the show, it is a really important thing for us to make sure that that female voice is centric to the show. Um, because there, at least at the time when it started, there weren't that many science podcasts or science radio shows helmed by women. You didn't hear a lot of female voices talking about science. Yeah, it's and I that's one of the things that I really love. And I was so glad that you guys asked me. I can't even tell you. I, I remember getting the email when I was first asked to come in and do hosting. And I've always loved this podcast. I, it's one of the very first that I listened to. I think it was the first podcast I ever appeared on as a guest. Um, and it's one of the podcasts that I love because there are a lot of podcasts that you listen to and they're they're really super good. They're also, you know, really scripted. And so a lot of times it's kind of hard to tell what the hosts are really super into. But Science for the People, it's just so obvious how much we love what we do and how nerdy we are (laughs) and how much we love to get into the weeds about science. And I just I love that. And I was also really interested to come on because I am now a professional science journalist, but I wasn't because I was a scientist before then. So by 2016, I had been a professional science journalist for about three years, but I had no journalism training and I was learning it all on the job. It was this horrible uphill battle. And one of the things I constantly felt I didn't have was good interview skills. And one thing I always heard listening to this podcast was killer interview skills. (laughs) And so I thought, if I'm a host on this podcast, I am going to develop good interview skills. And it worked. It worked. It's interesting because there's different types of good interview skills. Um, if you look at some other podcast material or people who have talked about how to create quote unquote good tape, um, in interviewing for podcasts and radio, um, some of what they qualify as good tape is not necessarily what we would think of as good tape. We're a very conversationally styled show. We don't have heavy editing. Um, we're not constructing a story in the same way that um, you know, the Gimlet podcasts construct a story. Um, this American Life constructs a story. Even um, how someone like Rose Eveleth on Flash Forward constructs a story. And those are all really excellent podcasts with great value. Uh, but that's not, that's not the type of podcast we are. Um, and so what we do is try and set up as much as possible a conversation that by and large, we can just air unchanged. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is time. We're volunteers and we just don't have the time to robustly edit, uh, in that kind of fashion. Um, but also the conversation for us is what's, what keeps us interested and what really gets us excited from the standpoint of the hosts and the editors. There's not a lot of podcasts like that on science where you just have people having a conversation about a topic or a type of research or a scientific idea or the way science impacts the the broader world. Um, and that isn't heavily edited. So we like to try and preserve that conversation as much as possible. And also, I think what's valuable for us, at least from my standpoint, is I don't have scientific training. I'm not I don't have a background as a scientist. 
I'm a layperson. I'm a really enthusiastic layperson. Um, I'm really keen. I read a lot of pop science. I like to keep up on this stuff and I like to learn new things, but I don't have this background, but I'm still super nerdy and I still want like all the details and I want to understand. And I think, um, that's also Desiree's background as well. And for us, it was about framing a show that would be interesting for us to listen to. Cause quite often you get sort of two different types of shows. You get the show that is very 101. It's trying to sort of educate everyone and assuming a very sort of low level of base knowledge so that you're not leaving anyone behind. There's also the show that is geared towards more expertise and assumes that you have an existing expertise to kind of lean on. These tend to be niche shows on medical topics, on linguistic topics, that kind of thing. They assume that the vast majority of the listeners have a, a base background in linguistics. What we didn't see a lot of at the time was shows like ours, which were pitched for the kind of enthusiastic layperson who reads 40 pop science books a year, who follows the pop science news, who's really active and interested on science Twitter. Um, so they don't like necessarily, yeah, <laughs> so that, that you don't need all the 101 and you want those details and that you want to be challenged. But that we can still, I, I like doing the conversational style because it kind of allows me to I actually think of it as like a train <laughs> where the beginning of my conversation is like the train leading the st leaving the station and you kind of build up a little speed. So we do get some of that background information in there before we're able to kind of start the real twists and turns as we head to Hogwarts. Um, because in my head, all trains go to Hogwarts. Um, and so I, I really like that conversational style because it allows you to kind of start at a relatively one-on-one starting point, but end up really kind of as much in the weeds as you want it to be. That's also the benefit of a long format interview because it allows you the time to get there um, and to pace as the topic needs to be paced. That's a real benefit where you don't have to try and cram all of the important information into 10 minutes, right? You'll notice most of our episodes or most of our interviews include at least one long format interview of at least 30 minutes. Quite often, we do a whole hour on a single topic or with a single guest. And that allows us the room to kind of stretch out and explore facets of the topic that both interest us as hosts that we think might be interesting to the wider audience, but also that you can tell immediately that the guest is really jazzed about. Because sometimes when you get someone in an, in an interview, you find out that there are pieces of the topic or the book or their research that maybe it didn't come through as clearly when you were reading about it, but that person is like really into that particular area or maybe doesn't get to talk about it very often. Like that's that's the thing they really want to talk about. And that's always the best place to go is to follow the guest's interest because hearing scientists and journalists and researchers talk enthusiastically about an area that, especially if they don't feel that it gets the airtime it deserves, like that for me is winning. Yeah. And I really like doing that, especially with book topics. Um, when we interview people about books, because a lot of the people who will be on our podcast with their new pop science book will have done kind of the rounds of, you know, interviews and articles and all that kind of stuff. And they'll have answered the whole set of typical questions that they get over and over and over and over again. And I love that with our long form format, I can get beyond that and I can ask them questions that a lot of times they've never had to face before. And they like that. <laughs> you know, I get a lot of um, emails back saying, that was awesome. Thank you for asking. Not only that, but um, the number of people who I interview who have written books, where I'm actually talking to them specifically about the book they've written, quite often at the end of the recording, when we're sort of having the kind of post-show chat, one of the things they say is like, you actually read the book. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely read the book. Yeah, Which apparently I, is not apparently typical. That's, that's not, no, actually, I, it's it's not typical uh, of many things. I've actually found that, uh, for example, most people who blurb books, you know, when you pick up a book and on the inside of the jacket, there's like blurbs from relatively famous people in the field being like, this book is so awesome, I couldn't put it down, etc. Most of those people have not read the book. And that's not bad. They're usually pretty famous. They're usually incredibly busy. You know, they've read parts of the book and they said, okay, it's good. Um, but I, I really, I feel good that every single time I interview someone about their book, I have read the whole thing, no matter how painful that may have been. And sometimes it was painful, but I have read the whole thing. 
Oh, yes. There have definitely been some books. Uh, one of the things you learn the hard way, uh, if you're doing interviews on books for podcasts is you should really always read the book before you request the interview because there have been some interviews that I have requested when I receive the book having not read the book. And then when I read the book, it's sort of this moment of like, oh, no. Oh, no, what am I going to do with this? This is a very difficult book to interview on. <laughs> I've had one or two of those. Yeah, most of the time, I, I think I've I've lucked out. Um, but yeah, there have been a couple times where I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> what do I even do? <laughs> Yeah, now I try to at least get halfway through the book before I say, okay, we're having you on the podcast. That is safe. Like, sometimes you don't have to read the whole book, but you need to at least get enough of the way in that you know that, yes, this is definitely, this is definitely a good topic to interview on. So as the podcast has continued, I mean, we've covered a lot of topics and I thought it would be good to talk about our favorite. So um, what about you? What's your favorite so far? Actually, so I, I wanted to share this because... My favorite podcast episode is a podcast that I did not do. Um, it was a podcast that Desiree did. Um, and it was a podcast that I still refer to all the time because it changed my mind about something important. And so that made it the episode to me that when I got the email asking me to host, I just leaped at it and was like, yes, yes, yes. And that's because of this episode. Um, the episode is episode 310, March 25th, 2015. And it is a podcast about circumcision, which is like, people are going to be like, what? <laughs> um, but it's a podcast about circumcision, specifically male circumcision. Um, there is female circumcision, but the majority of it's on male circumcision. And I was raised Jewish. So to me, even after I stopped being kind of practicing Jewish, circumcision was just something you did. It was right. And it was something that I ended up realizing that I had all this bias about. I automatically believed pro-circumcision science. Like there was science saying that, you know, um, circumcision helped prevent the spread of venereal disease. And, you know, I automatically dismissed anti-circumcision science because it didn't agree with what I had always been told. And I listened to that episode and I listened to it twice. And the first time I I, I listened to it twice because at the end of the first time, I caught myself not listening. And I went, wait a minute, <laughs> I am not listening. And I went back and the arguments in that episode changed my view and made me realize how biased I was about the issue of circumcision. And that's why I love this podcast, <laughs> because we can change people's minds and we can change people's minds merely by having them listen in on a conversation with an expert. And I, I just love that. That really makes me happy to hear because this is one of these episodes that um, to go a bit behind the curtain on it, Desiree and I talked about back and forth. It was an episode we wanted to do for a long time, um, but we needed to find the right person. There are some issues where everybody's got an agenda or a huge number of people have an agenda and it can be very difficult to find one person who can bring the kind of evidence-based reality uh, to the background of the issue without bringing in um, a bunch of the kind of baggage around partially the baggage around activism. And I don't want to say that's a bad thing, but when we're trying to talk about the evidence underlying an issue, we want to set aside some of that baggage as well um, to talk about at sort of more specifically some of the medical or science and evidence claims about that particular topic. Um, and we spent a lot of time going back and forth and looking at different people to try and invite on the show to talk about this issue. Uh, we had uh, quite a long short list. We narrowed it down to a couple of people. Um, and so that makes me happy because it, it indicates to me that that time and effort to try and find someone who could talk about it in that way um, was valuable and that it was time well spent and that ultimately it sounds like we picked, if not the right person, then someone in the direction of the right person to talk about that topic from the perspective that we wanted to talk about it in. I definitely think you did. Yeah, <laughs> it really, it, it, it took, I think it, I, I was, I was very, it's never happy to realize, to feel stupid and to realize that you have, you know, made assumptions and been biased your entire life. Um, but it was so important. And that was, that was really, a really huge one. Do you have, do you have a favorite? <laughs> I have so many favorites. Um, I was going to say, you love all your children equally. <laughs> I love all my children equally. That is definitely not true. There are some episodes that I could probably <laughs> look at and be like, no, strike that one from the record. Oh, yes. 
Um, there's a couple I think that I want to highlight as ones that just came out really well. There are some interviews that while you're doing them, you're not even entirely aware of it. But as soon as you finish them, you come out and you're like, that was amazing. The conversation was great. I got not exactly what I wanted, but that it was so much better than what I was looking for, where the conversation went and the type of information that I got from the guest. One of these episodes um, is in the courtroom, which is 359. It was uh, it aired in 2016. This was on the heels of the kind of big serial stuff. Uh, when serial came out, it had recently launched. It was all the rage. Podcasts were getting um, big notoriety. And um, a secondary podcast had come out looking at the the crime that they talked about in Serial in a more detailed way called Undisclosed. And it was a couple of lawyers or three lawyers who came on and went through the like real drill down minutia of that case, which I listened to. And there was so much in that podcast that just riveted me, not necessarily about that case specifically, although that was interesting, but the mechanisms behind how evidence and witness testimony is presented in a courtroom, how courtroom strategy can affect the trial's outcome, how things like um, anonymous tip lines can impact a case, and all the kind of bits and pieces that get involved there that impact uh, a, a case that goes to trial or doesn't go to trial or the guilty plea or the not guilty plea or even who gets investigated. Um, and to me, that was all entirely new information that I just was thinking as I'm listening to Undisclosed that this is incredibly valuable, critical information for more people to know that more people just don't. And definitely not everybody can listen to a podcast like Undisclosed, where there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of information on this. But also, I wanted to try and get to some of the heart of that to kind of pique people's interest. Um, and so I got Colin Miller on, who was one of the, the lawyers that uh, hosts Undisclosed. And we talked through at a slightly higher level, some of the concepts that had come out in Undisclosed that had really surprised me um, that I didn't know about how the legal system worked in the US, and how those kinds of things can impact who's investigated, who isn't, um, who gets charged, who doesn't, uh, that made me really change my outlook on how legal proceedings work. And that episode, I originally had planned for that interview to just be part of a broader episode. Um, and after we got the tape back, uh, my editor, uh, Ryan and I sort of talked about it and we're like, this is such a good episode as it is. We don't know what to cut. Um, it's just so hard to make cuts to this. And so we decided, you know what, screw the plan. It was originally just going to be 30 minutes here, but we, it was such an amazing conversation. It went on, I think for about an hour and 15 minutes. And so we just kept as much as we could, um, because it was such an excellent episode. And if we look at the numbers, it's actually been one of our highest performing episodes. It's done really, really well. Um, and that to me is really rewarding. It was, it was such an interesting conversation that was born from, um, just, not outrage on my part, but surprise about how much I didn't know about something I thought I knew a lot about. I wanted to get back a little bit to how long our podcast is because it's long. <laughs> most of most of the podcasts I listen to are actually eh, between the 20 to 40 minute mark per episode. There's not many podcasts out there that run a full hour per episode. And that actually gets us to our next listener question. It's from at Cornelioid on Twitter, um, who says, I enjoy the grittier detail in your interviews, uh, for example, anecdotes about scientific work and awareness of controversies in other fields. What do you as seasoned interviewers find most valuable about long form that the casual listener might not appreciate? Rochelle, you had a little bit to say about this earlier. Yeah, I, I think it's just the ability to go into more detail to ask those follows up to drill into more um, detailed information because the time allows for it. But also the time allows for us to explore those side roads. Um, it might not have been explicitly on the outline that I wrote. Uh, I know all of our hosts have create some kind of interview outline of topics, or potential topics or potential structure for the interview, though we sort of hold to them with varying degrees of rigidity, depending on how comfortable we are or how much we build out that outline. Um, and I have found over time that while I still prepare those outlines, and I still like to prepare those outlines, I try and let them go if it's clear that the conversation would be better served by following the guest and letting them kind of 
plot out a path. Some guests are better at this than others, but as an interviewer, it's important for me to be able to recognize when I don't have to sculpt the conversation as closely. Because there are definitely those interviews that the guest is so good and is so good at talking about what they do that they can effectively kind of sculpt it themselves. And then my role in that is to just be the person listening and to ask the most obvious next question that they clearly want to be asked so that they can go on to the next bit that clearly needs to get got onto. Um, so part of long form is being able to go down those alleys that might be interesting and allow the time to have those air. Because quite often when you go down those alleys, you need the context of the previous conversation. You can't just pluck out the very last thing they say and kind of cut that in and have the same kind of impact. You want to take the journey with them to understand how it's connected, to understand how they got there, to understand the kind of ups and downs of, of the process of getting there or the minutia and the nuance and, and how that needs to be understood. Um, and part of understanding that context and that nuance is allowing the listener and allowing myself to sit with it longer and to go on that journey and to step, go through the sort of step by step process with with the guest. Yeah, I like that. And I that's one of the things I like is that it allows us to kind of go further. But I also like how it allows us to kind of pull back and pull back to really basic stuff that I think a lot of people just kind of assume that we know, but we don't actually know. <laughs> um, so, you know, why are things important? How do people think? Um, for example, um, I was interviewing the bioethicist uh, Kelly Hills in one of my more recent episodes, and I asked what kind of ethicist she was. And I think it's possible that no one in an interview had ever asked her that before, because most people, when they interview bioethicists, they just ask them about the question but there are actually many schools of thought in bioethics, <laughs> like a lot of them. And I it, I don't think a lot of people know that. And so I, I really love the chance to kind of get back to real basics to say like, hey, um, you know, people think, you know, they think they know what ethics is. Do they? <laughs> you know, let's let's really get in there and actually define this. And sometimes it really turns the conversation in a very interesting direction. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes getting into the weeds isn't necessarily about drilling into the kind of jargon heavy, heavy play by play of exactly how an experiment was conducted. Sometimes that's not the most interesting set of weeds. Sometimes the most interesting set of weeds is actually zooming out a little bit and having a look at some of the broader concepts that we take for granted or that we assume everybody understands and is on board with or that are kind of invisibly guiding the process um, or that make some of the process really kind of difficult. One of the most interesting episodes I've done in the last couple of years and one of the most interesting books I read was The Life Project by Helen Pearson, um, which really dives into some of the longitudinal studies that have been done in the UK, including some pioneering longitudinal studies, longitudinal studies before longitudinal studies was a thing. Uh, and the types of information that we have learned from it, the types of like really valuable social context we now understand, um, and impacts that different decisions can have that are, that seem kind of superficially political, but have real impacts on people's lives. But also, the complexity of how that data is managed. How do you follow up with 70,000 people every four years? How do you track them? How do you figure out where they've moved to? How do you figure out if they're still alive? How do you construct interview techniques to try and glean the information that you want without necessarily knowing what types of questions we're going to want to ask in 60, 70, 80 years, but knowing that in 60, 70 or 80 years, that's when some of this data will actually bear its most important fruit. Um, the idea of constructing and managing a longitudinal study and those sort of broader concepts of how do you actually construct an interview? How do you do the follow-up? How do you try and figure out what to ask? You can't make these questionnaires so long that no one will complete them. But at the same time, you want to try and gather as much base data as you can because you don't know what will be valuable in 80 years time. Um, that was just as interesting as some of the 
some of the scientific outcomes of studying the data itself. So for me, it's also being able to zoom out and look at some of those broader questions, um, which is a luxury. Uh, and also, it's something that I don't think we ask often enough. Understanding the process behind something and why we do something um, and some of the kind of landmines and the ways that we've maybe done it poorly in the past or the greater context around why we make the decisions we make um, is just as important to me as looking at a specific study and what that specific study might have to say or might have discovered about the world. Yeah, it's really, I, and that's one of the things that I really love about long form is the opportunity to kind of get in there and ask about the methods, like the methods and why the methods are the methods and why the methods are the way they are um, for particular studies or for particular books. Um, and a lot of our podcast episodes are actually about books. Um, and uh, that actually brings us to our next question. Corey Brunson asks, I'd like to know through what channels you learn about new science books, especially those that don't get mass media exposure. I'm always enticed at the bookstore, but I'm also always worried that I'm missing the undertold stories that don't make it onto the shelves and I have no idea how to find them. So Rochelle, where do we get our books? Okay, so here's where I get my books. Uh, there's a couple of things. One that not everyone can do that has just come from running a podcast for almost 10 years. Um, and one that anybody can do. So obviously, now that we're a known podcast, we have scientists on the show, we talk about books a lot. Publishers send us information about books. Um, so we sometimes just get books in our inbox. People send us the books, but they also send us pitches for books. Uh, so for us, that's a great benefit uh, to hear about sort of the lesser known book sometimes that might come across um, in our inbox. Uh, that not necessarily everyone can take advantage of because publicists, publicists don't send kind of mass messages out to the entire world. So that's not necessarily something everybody can replicate, but it's a great boon to us, obviously. But the other way that I find a lot of my books that really anyone can do is Amazon has this great feature where within a category, you can look at um, the recently released titles in a category and also the upcoming titles. And this basically will just give you a list of all the titles that have been released in the last 90 days or the last 60 days, depending on which filters you use or all the ones that are going to be released, I think, in the next 90 days. And I troll this on Amazon a lot. I just go back to it constantly. I look and see what the most recent books are that have come out, and I don't necessarily filter them by most popular. I tend to filter them by most recently released. Um, and I do the same with... Uh, the upcoming books and just get a sense for what is coming out in the next 90 days. That was born originally from knowing that we're a podcast. So the books we want to talk about ideally need to be somewhat recent. We, as much as we like to be able to go back 10 years and talk about a really good book from 10 years ago, the person who wrote that book might not have that book top of mind anymore. So sometimes trying to create a, a good interview that goes into the kind of detail we like to go into on an old book is really difficult. So we do like to try and interview on more recent books. And also, if someone is promoting a book, it's easier to get them on the show because they want to talk about it. Um, so that was really just born of looking for more recent books and trying to get rid of the books that maybe are really popular and really well known, but not recent enough for it to be sort of relevant for us on the show. And I have found a huge number of the books that I have interviewed on, um, basically using that method, which is trolling Amazon and then looking at the books and either just grabbing them. I read a lot of ebooks, um, that tends to be now how I like to read just because I do a lot of travel. So it's easier than having to take physical books with me, I either buy them straight up or I request them through the publisher, which is again, something that we can do because we're a podcast. Um, but yeah, that's, I make heavy use of that. And some of the most interesting books that I've read have come from looking at that list. Um, so a good example is I did a, a book on seeds um, a number of years ago, or maybe about a year ago. Uh, that one was just something I stumbled upon on, um, on Amazon. The jazz of physics I found through Amazon. Um, there's a, a whole bunch of, bunch of books that I just kind of discovered by being able to scroll through lots of lists and clicking on things that look like they might be interesting. I actually get most of my books, um, a slightly different way. I get them through word of mouth because 
I am a science journalist in my day job, which means I know a lot of science journalists. <laughs> um, so for us, writing a book is actually kind of a rite of passage. And so I find out about a lot of science journalists who are publishing books. Um, and so the instant I see that happen on Twitter or in a Facebook group or somewhere else, I'm like one of the first people in there in the comments being like, hey, can I have a copy? <laughs> can you come on my podcast? Um, so I'm, I'm that, for, that person absolutely begging for an interview. Um, it's great because it means that I get a lot of the, the new books that come out. Um, also, I get to pick, um, because I'm a science journalist in my day job, I work at the magazine Science News, we get piles and piles and piles of books. Not every one of them gets reviewed by the magazine. I would say maybe like one in 20 actually gets reviewed by the magazine. So there's just a huge, actually, I think there's like three or four floor to ceiling bookshelves that get filled every year with the latest pop science titles. And I just go sometimes and I just browse. I'm like, oh, well, what's coming out, you know, in the next few months? Um, and I find them that way. It's it's a lot of fun. And actually, one of the things I love about uh, Science for the People is how much it's increased my own science reading. I didn't read near as many science books as I do now. <laughs> Of course, when we're looking for books, we're also, at least I also like to try and find the books that not everyone is talking about. If I'm seeing a book talked about everywhere, sometimes for me that like downgrades it a little bit in urgency. I like to try and yes. pull the books that aren't getting talked about in other places because I do I like to- do, I, Yeah, I find the big popular books kind of a turnoff. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, some of them are really good and I absolutely want to talk about them. But at the same time, they're getting talked about already. And I know for me, the challenge is finding books that not everybody else is talking about. Um, so I do like to try and dig in and find and raise up books that aren't getting talked about as much. Um, and it's one of the things that I think in generally our podcast tries to do as much as possible, which is bring people on and conversations in and topics in that aren't getting talked about in other places, or at least that aren't getting talked about in the way that we want to talk about them. Um, and that's also one of the reasons we started our, our Patreon campaign and our birthdays. Uh, this year's birthday was Lloyd Quartermain, an African-American chemist who worked with Einstein and Fermi and who um, purified the uranium-235 in the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima. Um, I mean, he obviously wasn't just an angel of destruction. His chemistry went to some beautiful work as well, and you should definitely check out the episode. Um, but it was kind of the motivation behind doing that as part of our Patreon effort was we wanted to continue to raise up scientists who are lesser known, who don't make big news, who kind of don't get special days uh, devoted to their work and have kind of been to some extent lost to history, but who have a real deserving of being recognized as well. Um, and it's been a lot of fun to kind of create this list of lesser known scientists. We have one uh, that we're looking at trying to select next year's birthday for. Um, that's an upcoming point of discussion for us. And we're super excited to get on that. So yeah, and that's I, I love that. Yeah, you know, they may not get you know, recognize like Darwin's birthday or something, but we'll give you your birthday. We will do that. <laughs> I love that. Um, and this is also the point where I take the time to say, <clears throat> insert self-promotional voice. Hey, you, yes, you who is listening, please subscribe and please support us because believe it or not, as we may have mentioned several times, none of us get paid for this. <laughs> Our guest hosts don't get paid. We do what we do because we love it in case you can't tell. But we also like to eat. Eating is good. Um, and so we appreciate donations um, via our Patreon. And if you support the Patreon, you get a scientist birthday card every year and access to the special scientist episode and the scientist birthday information, as well as all of the extra goodies that we record at the end of every podcast. Uh, when we're recording with a guest, we usually have several minutes at the end where we're just kind of getting to all the stuff that we didn't get to before. And so if you sign up on Patreon, you can actually get access to that. And also, if you can't donate, that's fine. I totally get it. But if you love us anyway, please go on to iTunes, particularly iTunes, and drop us a happy review. Uh, Rose Eveleth in her podcast, Flash Forward, which we have name dropped like 50 times in this episode, for good reason. 
explained um, a few episodes ago why this is so important. iTunes has an algorithm that recommends podcasts to people. The more five-star reviews and ratings we have, the more that happens. So then we get on more science lists, we reach more people, maybe we end up with more donations. So ratings and reviews really do matter. And that's the end of my annoying donate to public radio moment. I mean, we hate having to do that self-promotion stuff. If you I'm look, so red right now. Oh, if you look at the team of people who make Science for the People happen, none of us are super into marketing and self-promotion. That is just not our shtick. We don't do it very often because we really hate having to do it. Um, but we've got to let the world know we exist. And also, there's a reality in having a large listenership, which um, we have... Uh, a size of listenership, which means that we have real costs to run this show. And the costs mean that we cannot run this show out of pocket anymore. This show was run out of pocket between Desiree and myself for something like seven or eight years. It was always for us in the red. It was money from our own pockets, from our own bank accounts that made this show possible and made it possible for you to download it. I am buying you all your beer for the foreseeable future. (laughs) It was a a real cost that we were happy to put forward at that time because we were able to. It was something that we could afford. um, And it was also something that we felt passionate about. And also, we just really hated the idea of running ads on the show for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, ads obviously make the podcast environment run. Um, It makes the world work. We don't like running advertising because it makes us feel beholden to advertisers, but also coordinating advertising is an awful lot of work and it's no fun. Um, so there's a bunch of reasons we don't do ads and those are the two big ones. Um, also, sometimes ads don't want to be run on episodes about circumcision or sex or contraception. Uh, so yeah, there's another good reason. Um, but at the same time, we're a size and we have a, a listenership where we have real bandwidth costs. We have real costs to run the show that can no longer be supported by um, our team's out-of-pocket goodwill. So the show has to be able to support itself. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons we have Patreon set up. Those donations actually allow the show to keep running. If all of our Patreons disappear, the show would end because we cannot afford to keep it running without those donations. And I just want, I don't want to guilt anybody, but at the same time, those are incredibly valuable for us just at a base level. Uh, if we drop below a certain threshold, we cannot keep the show running. And to those who donate, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> a million times. Thank you. We adore you. Okay. But for now, something more fun. Our very last listener question comes from Pamela Romero. What's the most embarrassing or random thing that has happened to the hosts or crew while recording the show? I have a story. Excellent. <laughs> Are you ready for this story? Fire um, okay. So as, as you mentioned, um, as, as we mentioned earlier, my recording studio is in my closet. So you're hearing my dulcet tones right now from my closet. Um, and it's one end of my walk-in closet. And, um, this is also the point where I tell you that we used to do a lot of our recording live at like 7 p.m. Mountain Time on Sunday. But now we do it whenever we can basically fit it in. So I, it's so funny because I, I tell guests, oh, I need to get studio time, by which I mean, when can I be in my closet? Uh, but this means that if I'm talking to anyone in England or Australia or anywhere that's not really the United States, I'm talking to them either very, very early in the morning or very, very late at night before or after my normal workday. So for example, we are recording this now at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> which is why there is coffee in the world. Um, so most of the episodes I do are actually recorded at 6 or 7 a.m. or at 9 or 10 p.m. at night. Uh, sleep is a concept I don't really believe in. I only believe in coffee. Um, so anyway, here's your scene. It's 6 in the morning. I'm getting set up and I call a guy for the podcast. And I think it was Nils Hansen. And I was calling about anesthesia and why anesthesia never got a Nobel Prize. I think it was him, but I'm not 100% sure. All I know is that I'm on the phone and I suddenly hear screaming from somewhere in the house. Terrible, horrible screaming. And I excuse myself. (laughs) I do not hang up. I excuse myself. I run into the bedroom where my husband was sleeping because it's six o'clock in the morning. He's awake. He's looking very upset. The screaming is on the floor where my tiny, elderly, angry cat has decided that 6 a.m. would be a great time to learn how to climb the bedroom drapes. (laughs) She was very bad at this. (laughs) 
She, she has very long claws, so one paw was stuck in the drapes, while the rest of the screaming cat was scrabbling on the wood floor for purchase. Oh. <laughs> while she just screamed and screamed, and it took both of us to free her. Um, I was slightly bloody. <laughs> But I'm so glad my interview was still on the phone when I got back. Oh, I had a, a recent example of something kind of like that. Uh, the previous house I lived into this one had, let's say, paper thin walls. And the neighbors next door had a couple of kids who did not get on very well. They were not that friendly with each other. And one of the kids rooms was right next to uh, the space I was using to do recording in. And at one point during the interview, all of a sudden, through this paper thin wall, I hear this child scream, I hate you. I want to kill you just as young kids do when they're angry at their siblings. <laughs> but it was like they were screaming in the room I was in. It was that clear and that crystal clear. And both the guests and I just like instantly froze. And she's like, is everything okay over there? And I'm like, that's my next door neighbors. We might just have to give them a minute. <laughs> I mean, unknown sound is definitely one of the, uh, shall we say, um, risks associated with recording any kind of sound or audio from your own house, uh, where you can't necessarily control the type of sound you might get. Um, boy, the other one, and I don't know if you've done this yet, Bethany, but if you haven't done it yet, you will do it at least once, probably twice. Uh, I did an interview and it was like 45 minutes long. And then when it was done, I realized that I had forgot to press record. <gasps> oh my God. That has happened to me. It has oh. happened to me twice. Oh. The second time was less bad because I caught it about 20 minutes in, but that first time was just, I cannot quite describe or even like really bring up in myself the mortification and the like heartbreak because it was a good interview as well and the problem is it's I've had to redo interviews a couple of times for various reasons they're never the same they're never the they're same never. and sometimes there are parts of them that are better but by and large I would say the second run um, unless you have a different host doing them the second run is always just a little bit worse and it was just the most heartbreaking moment and just complete mortification because it was me that screwed up. I forgot to press the button and I just didn't notice until the very end. And it was, it was just so heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. I do, I do have unexpected sounds because, um, I, I live outside of Washington, DC. Um, and if you've been in Washington, DC for any length of time, you will notice that we have a lot of helicopters that happen. And that is not because we are in a constant state of emergency. It's because this is Washington, D.C. This is the center of the U.S. government. And everybody has a freaking helicopter, which they use to get everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little annoying. Anyway, <clears throat> so <laughs> a lot of times I will be recording and it will be five o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, this deafening chopper goes overhead and there is no sound baffling in the world that I can insert into my house. <laughs> I'm sure NPR doesn't have this problem, but but I do. <laughs> You definitely learn doing this stuff out of your own house that you don't fight the sounds, you just wait and say, you know what, it'll pass. It's just a helicopter is not gonna it's not coming to my house. So I know it'll pass. You know, it's sometimes it's so loud. I'm never quite sure. But anyway, <laughs> this has been amazing. It's always a joy to actually talk to you. <laughs> It is. We're a podcast where we work together, but we don't actually get an opportunity to talk with each other very often because we're interviewing other people. And we're also working several time zones apart. <laughs> that is true. We are very far flung, uh, but <laughs> going to see each other for realsies very soon. This is actually, believe it or not, here we are talking and we've been podcast hosts together for ages and ages and we have never met in person never never once. <laughs> never once but soon soon we will and and there will be photo documentation we'll Definitely. have to get that 100 yeah. percent. anyway thank you all you listeners very much for your questions they were really great um and thank you for listening and sticking with us and supporting us whether you're just starting to listen to us or if you've been with us from the beginning we love being nerds with you we couldn't do it without you so thank you very much and I wanted to just say a toast. I'm raising my coffee mug here because it's very early in the morning to our 500th episode-ish. Ish. 500 to the next ish. 500 to come. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. 
Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>